This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Back in the 1970s and 1980s, a person went around California committing rapes and murders. He was known as the Golden State Killer. That case went unsolved for many years, but recently officials arrested a person of interest and will be bringing him to court for these crimes. What is interesting and an incredible change is how they found this person. Investigators connected DNA from the original crime scenes with data on a genetic research open source site called GEDmatch, and the company heard about their involvement involvement in this process from the media. It also brings into the conversation on how DNA can be used for various reasons, and in this case, the DNA of your relatives and the privacy concerns that may come along with it. To delve deeper into this, we are joined here in studio by Rob Field, who's a professor of law and professor of health management and policy at Drexel University. He's also a lecturer here at the Wharton School in the Healthcare Management Department. And also joining us is Kate Spector-Baghdadi, who's an assistant professor in obstetrics and gynecology, as well as the chief of Research of the Research Ethics Service at the University of Michigan. Rob, as always, great seeing you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Thank Kate, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Kate, these companies that are linking DNA obviously are doing some, some very interesting work of bringing family members back together. But I guess the openness of this data is one of the things that, that's really now going to be looked at. Certainly. The openness of the data is the advantage because so many people can go and they can upload their own data or through some of the more comprehensive programs like 23andMe, they can send in their spit and 23andMe will generate the data from them and do the ancestry matching. And then everybody can come together and slowly build their family trees together. And from my understanding of the case, not only did they do the DNA matching, but then they also did a lot of additional work through census data as well as old newspapers um, and doing online research to bring all of these sources of information together across the web to re-identify some people that would otherwise left be de-identified. So I guess the question for a lot of people would be what kind of protections are in place for this data and what is done with the data after some somebody goes through the process, like you say, 23andMe, if they go through the process of trying to find relatives? Well, so there are more protections when people are using genetic data for health purposes than for ancestry purposes. Right. So, for example, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act prevents your employer or your health insurer from using your genetic data um, for health-related purposes to discriminate against you or other related purposes, potentially. However, this sort of ancestry matching that people voluntarily enter into, there aren't as many protections for because really up until this point, there haven't been as many potential abuses of that kind of data. However, an example of a person who might be really interested in protecting their privacy is, for example, if I was a young man in the 1980s and 90s, which I wasn't, but if I had donated sperm quote-unquote, confidentially, um, and then later on, I don't even have to contribute my DNA to one of these ancestry databases. One of my relatives could. And there have been cases where um, fathers were re-identified who had donated sperm decades ago, 
Um, so there are a lot of potential interesting things that can come with these ancestry sites, even though people are warned that this can happen. Yeah, the legal protections are pretty minimal right now. We have two main laws, neither of which anticipated this kind of situation. The right. HIPAA law protects the confidentiality of your medical information, but only from healthcare providers and insurance companies. So if anyone else leaks it, HIPAA really doesn't apply. Right. And then the GINA law, which was just mentioned, which protects you from discrimination in employment and insurance based on genetic information. But it's only in those contexts. So here, when we have law enforcement, when we have long lost relatives, when we have other uses of it, uh, there really is minimal protection. What you're protected by is the terms of service of the company that you upload to. And as we all know, uh, that's not much protection at all, if you can even read it. And again, for those companies, they are going to follow what the letter of the law is. They're not going to necessarily, in many cases, Rob, go and go above and beyond the call of, of what is really called for by law, correct? Probably not, because what they can do is is make a lot of money. Uh, there are huge marketing yep. opportunities by using that data in ways that aren't specifically outlawed. Uh, so, yes, they have every possible incentive uh, to use that data as broadly as possible. And, and I guess that's part of what some of these companies obviously are doing, is that they are being able to market this this information to third-party companies, which are using it on a variety of other, other sites and sources. Sources as well. Yeah, uh, to, to marketers, to, to pharmaceutical firms, to uh, uh, other, other kinds of uh, product manufacturers. Um, I think one of the things that's scary is that some of those uses, we don't even know what they are, and people right. didn't anticipate law enforcement. Uh, so we can imagine what they're doing today, but tomorrow uh, it's wide open. Kate, Kate was. Yeah, I, go ahead, Kate. I'm sorry. sorry. I was just going to point out, you know, as, as Rob just said, Really, all these companies have to do is they have to disclose in their terms of service that there may be other uses, including law enforcement, which they all do. Um, but really, whether the consumer reads those terms of service or right. understands yeah. those terms of service is not necessarily the company's problem. But um, as he also pointed out, there's lots of different money-making uses. So, for example, 23andMe just recently got a $1.5 billion valuation. And, of course, that valuation isn't on the basis of them being able to sell $200 test kits. That valuation is on the basis of the data trove that they own with millions of participants, their DNA and their related health outcomes and health history data. Um, which can be used for research purposes and is also very lucrative for those purposes. What is it that, that you think you would like to see, Kate, come forward now? I mean, obviously, this is this seems like it is a case, and we've seen this in a variety of instances, where the law has not caught up to the technology that we have or the information that we have available to us uh, in this digital society right now. Yeah, so there actually are a lot of state genetic testing for clinical use laws that are on the books since the 90s in the Human Genome Project. But the challenge with them, as you point out, is that they aren't updated frequently enough um, to capture the new scopes of our technology. So, for example, it used to be that if I got a genetic test in the 1990s, they would test for one specific or a couple specific variants, right. like the BRCA variants associated with breast and ovarian cancer. But now we're doing large whole genome and large exome sequencing. And the unique things about that is it's generating all this data. We don't even know what it all means. And also, it's generating enough data about me that it's uniquely identifiable to me. It's even better than a fingerprint. So even if my name isn't associated with it, as we could see through the Golden State Killer's re-identification, it can only be mine. So all they need to do is make that final link.
Right. What's particularly scary about genetic data is it doesn't have to be your own. In this Correct, case, they right. found a distant relative and yep. worked their way back. So if a cousin of yours decides to donate uh, DNA information, uh, it's out there. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't prevent your cousin from, from doing that. And you may not even know it and, to begin with. And you probably don't even know it. And that's a really tough one for the law to address. This is a totally new kind of situation. Uh, we had assumed up to now that your medical information was yours. Uh, you would have the autonomy to decide who could see it. Right. Uh, you would have the ability to see it yourself. Uh, but now your medical information is something that you don't even know is out there and, and someone else has donated. And obviously from the legal side of things, you're talking about the police going forward with this path to go to the investigation to be able to find this person. Was anything that, that the, the police did in this investigation improper or illegal in terms of going this route? There was one piece that was a little bit questionable, which is that when they entered the information into the database, they said that it was theirs or they were authorized uh, by the uh, person involved to upload it, and they really weren't. Uh, but the company said that that was really not a direct violation of their terms of service. So other than that, uh, this was perfectly legal and probably will hold up in court. Well, I was going to say, what do you think will be the, the legal ramifications for this, Rob? Because, I mean, this is, as you said, this is seemingly kind of an area that really wasn't considered. This, obviously, when you think about police and being able to when they hit a wall in an investigation to be able to kind of use this as a potential next path to be able to find a criminal, the police are going to going to take this opportunity. Right. Well, we, we have a doctrine about improperly obtained evidence yeah. that says that it can't be used, that it gets uh, thrown out of court, and that the police would then have gone through all this trouble and would not have the smoking gun uh, right. to, to, to convict him. If it came to that, then that would dramatically change things. But that does not seem likely in this case because they did not do anything illegal. And uh, we we really uh, ha have a wide open frontier. So then, Kate, what what do you think that, that the companies like 23andMe and GEDmatch need to consider moving forward with this? Yeah, well, so one point that I wanted to make, just to add to Rob's point, um, is that also know that police have been using forensic DNA databases for decades. Right. Yep. That use isn't new. But the big switch is that now there, so when you get into a forensic DNA database, the assumption is that you got in there for doing something nefarious or wrong, which of course isn't always correct. People end up in these police DNA databases because uh, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, they were related to the wrong person, they're being ruled out whatever. But there's some sort of assumption that it's okay that we're waiving these other people's privacy who are in this DNA database. And I think one of the big switches is now we've switched to people who just happen to contribute their data to an ancestry service. And I think that's what kind of makes people uncomfortable, is that there's sort of no excuse for this privacy waiver of their data. That doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing to do, but it's a step further than we have been used to in the past. Um, but going forward, I don't, I don't know that there is something that these companies can do persuasively differently. So they already disclose that this is a potential implication and say specifically, if you aren't willing to risk this, then you shouldn't send us your DNA. Right. 23andMe also makes transparent all of the requests for sampling that they've gotten and all of them that they've filled. And my understanding is to this day, they haven't shared any DNA with the police, but if they're required by law, 
they will do so. But again, the, the, the point that you brought up earlier about reading the terms of service or the understanding by the consumer that is actually going to one of these sites, uh, most people, I would say, don't worry about reading every line of the terms of service, whether or not they read any of the lines of, of the terms of service. So this really is kind of just being pushed back, it seems like, on the consumer at this point, Kate. Yeah, exactly. And the consumer's family, right? Because Correct, yeah. it's not necessarily the <laughs> consumer's privacy that's being waived. They're agreeing. And, in fact, in the 23andMe Terms of Service, it states very explicitly, you know, you could be revealing information about your family members. But we still have yet to revolve, resolve in medical ethics how we're going to require people to fulfill that respect for their family members. Right now we just yeah. sort of warn them, and the person says, hey, I'm okay with that, but is everybody okay with that? Yeah, and of course the police can always get a warrant, which supersedes right. everything. Right. And uh, th- these companies do warn about that, but uh, that's a an exception to the HIPAA law as well. Uh, so right. if, if the police can show probable cause to a judge, anything's fair game. You can imagine the conversations around the family reunion, yeah. you know, in the summertime. <laughs> you know, uh, hey, by the way, I'm going to go do an ancestry site. I'm going to give DNA. Just be ready in case you guys are doing anything nefarious out there. Uh, mm-hmm. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We are joined on the phone by uh, Kate Specter Baghdadi of the University of Michigan, Rob Field of Drexel University. Again, your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. And I guess, Kate, one of the things also to, to kind of circle back on is the fact that these companies are using this data, your, your DNA data, for other purposes. And it's the understanding of the consumer that this is part of the process. Again, many of them may not know that this data is being, you know, tr- uh, is being given out to third-party companies used for other research. That's potentially true. It depends what company you're partnering with. So there are several companies that do make it very explicit in the terms of service. And then, for example, with 23andMe, you actually have to do an additional research consent in order to okay. share your, your data with um, academics or NGOs or private industry that's doing research with your data. Um, but I think the crux of the issue is that it doesn't matter what we disclose. It doesn't matter what we put in front of people because we know from empirical bioethics research on this that people don't read it. And even yeah. if they read it, they don't understand. I mean, we have that problem in clinical care when we're recruiting clinical patients for research protocols. We have an entire conversation about the risks and benefits of research. And at the end, if we ask some questions, sometimes people don't even realize that we were talking about research. So it's actually very hard not just to disclose and give information, but to achieve understanding. Should DNA be private? Uh, in theory, in a the, you know, perfect world, yes, but that's impossible. Uh, we know that anonymous DNA databases can be traced back to the individual using that and public records of addresses and, and ages and so forth. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think it's possible any more than cell phone records or, or, or anything else. Um, I, one thing we might look at is the terms of service translated into English. So we've done that with IRBs for research and informed consent. 
and said they have to approve the language that you tell the research subject so okay. that the warnings are clear. And perhaps we could have standards for making clear uh, the terms of service, which no one can or, or, or will read. I, I challenge anyone to, to truthfully assert that they've read even one terms of service. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that would be uh, that would be one one way of doing it. Um, the other consideration is what we're hearing more and more of the phrase that if you're not paying, you're the product. And so with Facebook and, and Amazon and all of these other sites where we agree to donate our information in return for a very valuable free service. Uh, why are they giving it for free? Because they're making money off of us. Why, why else would they do that? Uh, so to make it clear to people that if it's too good to be true, it's, it's too good to be true. Yeah. You know, th- there's something in it for the company. Kate? Yeah, I like I like that phrase, if you're not paying, you're the product. Although with 23andMe, they get it both ways, right? Because yeah. you are paying and you are the product. Um, I also wanted to point out that I I agree that ideally my DNA would be private if I wanted it to, although there are a lot of people who really take a lot of value um, in doing this ancestry stuff. People, for example, who might be adopted, who don't have their own medical history or their information, Um, people who are just looking for relatives. Um, I know that there are a lot of people who do willingly want to engage in these kinds of products, but the challenge is, of course, when you don't. Um, and I actually see a future, uh, future place that the law should really be focusing on is the difference between sort of academic researchers, as Rob pointed out, who are under sort of these very um, specific and yeah. overarching human subjects research regulations. So, for example, I have to follow them. They don't necessarily apply to these private companies that aren't doing research with federal dollars. So, for example, 23andMe has said explicitly, and I think that it's correct, that they're not required to have IRB review, so Institutional Review Board review, for the, for the ethics of their research, of any of their research protocols. They do so because the journals require them to have it mm-hmm. in order to publish, right? So there's these two sets of standards that we're operating under, which really enable this private industry in the same way that they dissuade the public industry. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call with your comments or questions. We're talking about concerns around uh, privacy and your DNA coming out of the fact that a gentleman has been arrested as the Golden State Killer. Uh, that will move forward uh, in the next uh, several weeks and months to come. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Rob, you mentioned the HIPAA laws which obviously are, have been around now for quite some time. And, you know, any time I, I hear more people when they have to deal with a hospital, that's when they will they are very f- uh, feel free about talking about the HIPAA laws. The question is whether or not you need to have a, a, a review, a look at the HIPAA laws to see, you know, what is being missed at this point? I think we do. Uh, HIPAA was passed uh, over 20 years ago, and obviously technology was very different. Uh, back then, we were concerned with electronic medical records. Yeah, uh, with yeah. someone having a, a file on you and emailing it, or printing it out, or uh, sending it from one location to another. It was not uh, these giant databases. In fact, the assumption under HIPAA was that the databases were safe because they were anonymized; they were de-identified. Uh, so, in theory, uh, they could use your data if no one could could identify you. But uh, with genomics, uh, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, again, as researchers have shown. Uh, just having your anonymous DNA can be enough to circle back to you individually. Kate, look at the HIPAA laws. Yes. I mean, the way all of these laws were structured was to regulate data 
by the way data came in. So they all regulate data by who's collecting it, whether you're a healthcare professional or your healthcare clearinghouse, or you're an institution or your private industry, all of these data, that's how we're controlling them. However, then they go, all go into these big data banks, right? And secondary, secondary research with genetic and other kinds of health data is exploding right now, which means that I didn't collect it, I buy it or I rent it or I use it. Yeah. And so what we really need to be starting to conceptualize is how to regulate data usage as opposed to data collection. Because at this point, it's all collected. Facebook knows everything. <laughs> yeah. There's no more secrets. Um, so that's really where we need the new laws to focus. So I'd like to point out another wrinkle on this is that we've been talking about keeping someone else from knowing your information, but there's also a movement to protect the right not to know and protect right. you from knowing your own information. Right. A lot of people don't want to know if they have a gene for Alzheimer's. Uh, there's been research on, on Huntington's disease, right. uh, which is uh, similar to, at an earlier age. Uh, you may not want to know this information, and yet if a relative has put information into a database, it may circle back to you whether you wanted to or not. And I think that's a, a, a whole other dimension to this, uh, which people should be aware of. If, yeah, I completely yeah. agree. And just to add one more dimension, so the right to prevent other people from accessing, the right not to know, but then also the right to know, because that's yeah. what Ann Majicki, who's the CEO of 23andMe, would argue, is that FDA and FTC and the regulatory bodies are potentially getting in the way of consumers acting accessing their own genetic information that they might want. You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned about the fact that of of the fact, uh, Kate, that police have been doing uh, various levels of, of testing for you know a couple of decades. It was written in a couple of the articles uh, post the arrest of this gentleman. The fact that actually the process of bringing genetic testing forward may have actually stopped this gentleman in in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So I know that there's some speculation of why he stopped to begin with. Um, and also, also people have been sort of talking like this is completely unique, although having read all the stuff that's come out over the past few days, this is apparently also how they caught the grim sleeper. Um, yeah. And there's some really interesting interviews with uh, detectives and other police professionals that saying, you know, this doesn't happen anymore. Um, the, these kinds of crime scenes where people leave, leave behind all of this DNA because our databases and our genetic capabilities are so much better than it was in the 1980s and the 1990s that people just aren't going to get away with it anymore. You can't leave behind, you know, rape scenes and murder scenes. Like, we're going to get you. Rob? Yeah. Um, it, it obviously is going to have a deterrent effect. Now, in this case, the defendant was a police officer, so the speculation is that he saw the technologies coming and he figured, uh, okay, then time is up, yeah. uh, better stop doing this. Um, but uh, we're, we're going to find DNA. You, you can find things that, like, uh, th this guy discarded in the, in the garbage. It's very easy to come up with. Uh, so there's going to be some deterrent effect. Uh, the scary part is, is it going to be an over-deterrent where people are afraid to do anything? Is this, though, a concern that seemingly feels like it will continue only because, as, as Kate kind of alluded to, you have entities in this sector, both public and private. And because of the fact that you have uh, companies that are for-profit companies that are in this realm, that, as you mentioned, terms of service is one thing, but, you know, the rules of what somebody like Kate has to follow. You know, the difference in that seemingly, unless you find a way to be able to correct this, this is something that is going to potentially be here for quite some time. 
Yeah, I, I don't see an easy way around it. Um, as Kate was saying, a use-based regulation uh, would do something. We, we assume the information is going to be out there. It's, it's going to be how, it, how it's going to be used. And, you know, we're fighting over um, locking uh, cell phones, uh, yeah. unlocking and, and back doors to cell phones yeah. and encryption in computers. And should law enforcement have that? I think this is a very similar debate. There's probably going to be other technologies where we have the same argument. But here we have crimes that were committed 40 years ago. Uh, what happens if the next case is a a terror attack that's thwarted. Uh, it seems to me the law enforcement argument gets stronger there, sure. and that line gets harder to draw. Kate? Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting. I mean, the real business question is, will people continue to contribute their data in this way yeah. if that's how we can use it? And we have some reason to believe that that is, in fact, the case. Um, so Kristen Osler has actually done some interesting research on this, where she found that people are willing to share all sorts of private health information um, on their health apps. So sort of like, you know, weight tracker apps. There's lots of um, getting pregnant apps that people to share really, really private information. And people are willing to do that under circumstances in which they're getting back, you know, some, some modicum of sort of health information from these private data sources. But then people are really suspicious of partnering with academic researchers because we have to disclose like the 17 pages of all of the terrible things that could happen to you. And we're only allowed to give you in return like a $25 Target gift card because we're trying not to coerce you, right? So we're trying to do all the right things. Um, and people are just more interested in sharing their information on social media because that's that's where they find value. Yeah, apparently Facebook has not seen much of a drop-off no. since the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Nope. It seems like the enticement there is just too strong. Great having you both with us. Kate, thank you very much for your time on the phone. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Rob, as always, great seeing you. Thanks for coming over. Thank you. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 